Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You're listening to Class Dismissed, episode 217, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, how much should teachers engage and share with students about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, with the record cost of housing, is there something that can be done to help teachers finance a home? Our guest says yes, he has a plan, and he's actively lobbying Congress. Stay tuned for the details. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, director of curriculum and instruction, and co-host of this show, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? Listen, we are already in the month of March. Right. So I'm great because spring break is around the corner. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's been. Uh, I don't. Uh, is it fair to say it's been the past year? My like, you know. Yes. Okay. Okay. So you feel yes. that way? I do, and I feel like summer's going to be here before we know it. Um, and that's probably because I'm a senior mom, and I'm trying to hold on to every moment. <laughs> yeah. How is that going? Are you ready it's, for that? And I'm not. I can't. But imagine. I'm grateful, so I'm going to behave. <laughs> yeah. I got you. I got you. I mean, are you doing all the senior things? It's nice that uh, masks seem to be coming off. Things are looking better with COVID. So uh, we watched for the past couple of years, a lot of seniors had to miss out on, you know, maybe the way things used to be. It looks like your seniors getting a little I bit of a better gonna experience. Be, huh? Yeah, I think we're going to be fine. We're already preparing for prom. So, yeah. Good. Let's hope it stays that way. Um, today, I felt like we needed to talk about something that I don't really know if I've ever even talked about it on any of our hundreds of episodes on this show, but um, it kind of came to the forefront of my mind watching what's been going on with Russia and Ukraine. And then I started reflecting when I was a child um, in elementary school during the first desert storm in the early 90s and kind of yeah. like, you know, how my teachers talked to us about it and how much they allowed us to see, I guess, in the classroom. I mean, it's different. Did they actually talk to you about it? Yeah. And, you know, I grew up again in, in Northern Virginia. So, I mean, you had a lot of military families, government families. So I think, yeah, I remember like they would show us news clips and stuff and we would see stuff where, you know, George H. That's Bush was interesting. talking. Yeah. You, do, you, do you find that I, that doesn't happen? I yeah. grew up in Southern California and my father was in the military and my father was deployed. And I don't recall anyone talking to me about it. How what I recall. You? Do, you, do you recall? Like, I guess uh, you were probably like seventh, eighth grade, somewhere around there. Yeah. 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 Teenager for sure. Yeah. What I do recall is the support from the USO wives, you know, and our families would get together um, at, on the base and um, just do different things together. And that was comforting. But I can't recall anyone. And San Diego has a large uh, right, huge base. Navy. Southern California right. has, you know, multiple bases up and down the coastal area. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so no, I don't remember that. And I think that's awesome that you had that kind of support. Well, and so at the same time, though, I remember there was a student in my class and um, I remember their their parents were like, please don't talk anymore about the war. I don't want my kids to see that. And I remember that kind of like coming up. And then I remember my dad being like, well, should we lock them in a closet? Like, I don't think there is a right or wrong answer. Like I, I, I get all sides. And that's kind of why I wanted to have uh, a discussion. Like if you're a, a teacher, especially like a young teacher who hasn't been through a, a very tragic or scary news event, um, what advice can we give them? You know, so that's kind of what I've been well, working on. Don't you think that a lot of that should be handled at home? And and let me let me tell you why. You just mentioned a parent not wanting their child to hear anything else about it. Mm-hmm. However, there were other children like you whose parents, you know, a parent was actually deployed and out in right. um you know, involved in that. And it, so it has an even greater impact on you being worried about your, um, your parent. It's already difficult enough. I, I, I wonder if we should talk about how to engage parents in the conversations they need to have at home. Well, I, I think, yes, absolutely. We, and I think some of the tips I'm going to give could apply to parents could apply okay. to teachers as well. Um, and the reason, you know, every school policy is going to be different and everyone teaches a right. different age group, right? So like what we're saying may apply to middle schoolers, but not first graders or, or high schoolers yeah. and so forth, you know? I get so that. I, I kind of just want to get people thinking because there's also, as we all know, there's new stories out there that you cannot say that needs to stay at home. We don't talk about it here. Like there's stuff that's so in our face. And um, let's say that we were somehow engaged in, God forbid, you know, something with Russia, Um, you know, that that would be a major topic of discussion and concern, I think, for a lot of students. I will share this one last thought, and then I look forward to hearing your list. I also think we have to be careful with what we expect teachers to openly discuss with students Mm -hmm. because something like war is very political Mm -hmm. and you don't want someone um, projecting their views on your child if that is not what you believe in your home. So I think there's a fine line. There definitely a fine line. So, all right, here's some of the, some of the bits of advice I kind of found by scouring through the internet. Um, One thing is to ask children, and again, this could apply to a parent or a teacher, but ask questions about what they're seeing. Like, how are you feeling? And mm-hmm. what do you think? Um, and in other words, give the child like a safe space to reflect and share rather than just kind of pushing anything on them. I think that's a good idea, especially through social studies and history classes, because they can always make connections to prior events with facts and keep personal ideals out of it. I'm not sure how comfortable an elementary teacher would be, but with such young, impressionable minds, I suspect an elementary teacher could definitely provide that topic and keep it, you know, um, very simple and not interject anything that they should not. That's good. Now, uh, my kids, both my 21-year-old and my 16-year-old, um, they're on social media. And yeah. I know my 21-year-old to- already has told me, he started asking me about um, being drafted. They're like, you know, what if this was to oh spin my. into World War Three and so forth? And he's mm-hmm. most likely seeing memes and rumors and stuff on online, right. you know. And so the next bit of advice that I saw was give kids facts and facts and context. Like, I think this might be a valuable time if you're in high school or a history teacher to talk about the draft and why we had it and when's the last time we had it. And, you know, and maybe kind of the, the ramp up of World War Two or World War One and, and so forth. I think, you know, kind of stick to those facts and, and that might help. Um, alleviate some concerns that might be sparked from seeing stuff on social media. I agree. 
Um, and it's interesting that one of your sons has, you know, posed that question. My son hasn't said anything yet, but what he did do was inform me. I guess he didn't think I receive alerts on my phone. He informed me um, when Russia made the decision to invade Ukraine. And I found that to be very interesting. I don't know if it was because he was having a discussion at school or, you know, just simply because our kids read and believe it or not, they read the news too. Mm -hmm. Not just, you know, random social media posts and memes. Um, I think they're much more socially conscious and interested in what's happening. And it's, Good. It's always hard. It's just always hard to get make sure they're reading factual information. I don't know what it is about the topic of Russia, and it might be tied back to the fact that, you know, this was once, at least in the 80s, the, known as the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan would say. Yes. And just the scariness of knowing that they do have a formidable military and nuclear weapons. And uh, for whatever reason, my 21-year-old has been asking lots of questions and watching um, very, you know, interested. In, and so I started talking to him about oh. NATO and, um, you know, how right now Ukraine's not a NATO country, but this could, you know, escalate if they were to push into a NATO country because then we have an obligation to help defend and so forth. Correct. You know, so I, I, he was kind of very, very curious about all that as being a a child who could potentially be drafted, probably unlikely, but you know, if things spun out of control, it's it's a possibility. He is of age um, and has signed up through selective service as required. So, um, you know, I, again, I think just kind of to stick with the facts and kind of help them understand Correct. better is a good way. I to appreciate him being concerned and asking questions. I think that's very responsible versus ignoring it. And, and God forbid that it does happen. And then suddenly he gets an alert and then he's not prepared. Right. No doubt. Um, this one bit of advice is one that I think most of us listening have probably heard before, but it goes back to just whenever you see something tragic, whether it be tied to a school shooting or just anytime people are in pain, it's the old Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, um, how he would give the advice from his mother, quote, when something scary happens, look for the helpers. You'll always find people mm-hmm. who are helping. And, and so that's just a good one to put back in the forefront of your mind if you ever have to respond to something that kids are asking about. Absolutely. And that's one of my favorite quotes. I know. It's so good. Really is good. Um, And then um, we kind of go into the fact that, you know, teachers need to know and parents need to know that some questions are too tricky to answer. And that's okay. Like, it's okay to say, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not sure anybody does. Or that's Mm -hmm. an interesting question. And I don't know the answer. However, we can see if we can figure that out together. I think sometimes, you know, when you're, you're in that position of supposedly knowing, you almost feel an obligation to know the answers. But it's okay to say, I don't know, right? I think discovery and collaboration is so important in a classroom and a teacher being able to say that they don't know and then working with students to conduct research and find facts on whatever it is a child might be questioning just builds so much credibility and community within the classroom. Um, in retrospect, at home, it's the same for a parent. If they don't know, it's it should be safe and comfortable to say so. And we've got to stop putting that pressure on ourselves to you know know all and be all and then cond- see if we can show our child the proper way to look online for factual information. And oftentimes, you know, just speaking, sometimes our children, our teenagers show us things or um, show us avenues where information is being provided that we're not aware of. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a great, great way to just have deep discussions with your children. Let me ask you this, um, not to date you and me, but I was in college <laughs> um, during September 11th, 2001. Um, were you teaching yet or were you still in college as well? I was teaching. I was in my classroom 
And this was the back in the time where we had the huge televisions mounted in our classrooms because we were considered channel one schools. Mm-hmm. And we showed channel one to our classes and there was really cool shows that were put together. They were student friendly. They gave them um social studies information, current and relevant news. There were vocabulary segments. It was just really cool, something that you showed. And this particular day, my neighbor from across the hall came and said, she said, turn on the television. And, um, you know, we, we weren't big cell phone users then and not with smartphones anyway. Mm-hmm. And when I turned on the telephone television, it was most devastating and very um, disruptive and I didn't want to alert or upset my children, but they saw it. What age group As were they? Middle school. So okay. seventh and eighth grade. Right. And we were having, you know, just a live discussion right then on what was going on on that television. I literally stopped teaching to help us understand what we were seeing and what was happening. And we watched it unfold live. Um, and I think I spent about a week after that every single day. Um, comforting them and helping them understand what happened and giving them updated um, facts, you know, that we, we had, but it was very traumatic for all of us. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Cause there's, I mean, to you and I, we look back like that was yesterday, right? Like we can clearly right. remember that day, but we have to keep I'll in mind, there are teachers who are coming into the workforce right now who weren't alive. Right. And so you like, know. they don't know what a day like that's like and how to handle it. So I hope I'm hoping that we can take, you know, bits and pieces of the advice we had today. And, and also this is a reminder, like we could find ourselves in, in a day that's like that, that's unexpected where you are having to navigate it with students in the classroom. And it's so much unavoidable in your face. You have to figure out, all right, well, how do I, you have to, yeah. I mean, do you have anything you look back on that you, I don't want to say regret, but would have done differently? I mean, do you feel like you did the right thing by having a conversation about it? Right. Well, I think because of where the television was mounted and I wasn't quite sure what she was telling me to turn on the television and, to, and see, I think now our technology is so much more modern that I could, you know, I would know about it immediately because of my watch, my phone and my mm-hmm. laptop. And I could make a conscious decision on whether I was going to share that um, with my students or not. That particular day, the television is mounted in the corner facing the student's desk. And to turn it on, you can't just turn it off and then lie. Um, so. You know, that's a difficult situation that I was put in. But also it was um, just like this pandemic, completely unexpected, a complete shock that this could be happening on our soil. And no, I wouldn't change anything. We we talked about it. I had beautiful relationships with my students and um, we all comforted each other. And then, of course, um, I remember communication going out from our school district and, um, you know, parents reaching out and asking about their children, especially if we had someone that was in New York at the time, if they had a family member um, that was traveling in New York. And I just, I just remember comforting one another and praying and, and, and um, we did, we collected um, things to send to New York. um, And no, I wouldn't change a thing. And so I'm going to give you my perspective um, of my day that I wish was different. And it's, you, you, I just hear it out. So I was watching it in the morning. I was at home, watched it for hours like everybody else. And I was kind of expecting my university to cancel evening classes. Um, Mm -hmm. They didn't. So I had an evening class, one of those like, you know, long three hour blocks, like six to 9 p.m. of statistics. Um, I walk into the class. There was probably like, I don't know, five or 10 of us in there. And um, not a word was said about it. And it was just like, all right, here's statistics. Let's start. And 
it bothered me. And it still bothers me to this day that 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 teacher, I mean, I know that professor had to make a decision like, am I just going to stay focused and and do what we need to do? Or there was zero acknowledgement. And it was the most awkward and I don't know, awful class I've ever sat in. Um, But we just did our statistics homework and it felt very... It didn't feel that's, human. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it is important to have the conversation because I've been on the other side, and I was of age to where I was certainly Correct. old enough to, to to have the discussion. As on top of that, you know. So I mean, I was in a classroom with twelve and thirteen year olds, and I just really believed that they needed to be able to discuss it. Yeah, I think you that's yep. And and it goes back to that that first thing that we said: ask questions. What are you seeing? How are you feeling? What do you think? You know, let them mm-hmm. maybe even lead the discussion. Um, at times. And I think that's something that could be done there. So anyways, kind of a, a darker conversation, but one that I think uh, just needs a quick refresher on, especially again, if you're a younger teacher and you hadn't actually lived to one of these things, it's good to have some, some uh, arrows in the quiver to kind of pull out. Should you have to go through something like that? I agree. Are you ready for today's bright idea? Oh yeah. I'm pumped up about this one. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is Fighting for Educators on Capitol Hill. Sam Royer believes that the United States government can make housing more attainable for educators and first responders throughout the country, and he has a plan to do just that. Sam is the architect of the Helper Act, which is legislation that would eliminate a down payment requirement and provide 100% upfront financing for teachers, police officers, firefighters, EMTs, and other frontline heroes. He'll also do this while trying to eliminate a monthly mortgage interest premium that's often required when financing a home. Sam, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks for having me. Uh, There's an idiom, and it's um, often used whenever something's really hard. They say uh, it'll take an act of Congress, uh, something that's kind of a long shot. Um, So here we are. You are literally trying to have an act of Congress up in Washington, D.C. I love the idea of of trying to make housing more attainable for teachers, but uh, is this something that you really think you can get past? Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think so. I mean, it's been, you know, a long, hard fight. Since in the last year, we've gained a lot of ground. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, my dad was a teacher, you know, one of the most famous Men on the Planet Named the Rock was inspired by a teacher, not my father, but our football coach. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, you know, teachers change the world. So it's it's time that we get them into housing more affordably. I mean, and so what's really motivating you? You said that your dad was a teacher. Uh, I mean, is there, you just feel like teachers should be able to not have to finance a house uh, or come down with a down payment of 20%, say? Well, I think actually teachers, if you look at all the different perspectives we're looking at, you know, teachers are the one that they, you know, literally a lot of times are spending money just for classroom supplies. A lot of times they have to have second jobs just to have a higher paying, you know, salary. It just really depends. Um, whereas like a police officer or firefighter, a lot of times can work overtime. So teachers, I think a big part of my heart is that, you know, they are, they're, they're spending time with children every day that, you know, many times are unruly. Many times, you know, there's a lot of different dynamics that are going into it. And for them to have to struggle, especially with student loans, a lot of teachers come out of college, they have student loan payments. And, you know, to try and come up with a down payment that's required by a traditional FHA loan right now, there's not really any reason why, you know, something like this shouldn't be helpful for them. I think if if I just went into the street and asked a bunch of people, you know, hey, would you be for teachers um, being able to do this, not have to put a down payment down on a home, getting 100% upfront financing, not having to worry about the monthly mortgage insurance premium? Um, I think most people would say, yeah, let's do this. However, um, we know how things go in Congress. I mean, you, you, you go up to the Hill and you're trying to push this through. I mean, what type of pushback are you getting? 
Uh, I mean, teachers are actually our biggest pushback. Some people are asking why is it that teachers are the ones that are included in this? Because, you know, a lot of people look at the term first responder. Teachers are included because HUD already defines uh, first responders under the Good Neighbor Next Door program. And when I say good uh, first responders, they actually put first responders and teachers in the same category. So right now there is a program called the Good Neighbor Next Door program that actually what it does, it allows for teachers, firefighters, teachers, and EMTs to go purchase HUD foreclosed homes at half price. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is, Nick, I didn't ask you. I think you're you're in Mississippi, correct? Correct, yes. Okay, so what I'm going to do is while we're sitting here talking, I'm going to look up how many homes are actually available in the state of Mississippi, and you will see why this does not cover enough space for those individuals to attain or attain home ownership much more affordably. So in Mississippi right now, do you know how many homes are available that all the teachers, all the firefighters, all the EMTs, and all the um, uh, police officers can pick from in the state of Mississippi? And, and, and so just so I understand the question right, you're saying homes that are, what you call them, HUD? like Available. HUD yeah, available? Available under the HUD Good Neighbor Next Door program. I would say it's not a lot. I mean, I used to work in the news business here, and um, yeah, I, I would say there's a few streets in, in my town. Um, I'm just going to guess. I would say 500, not maybe. Thir- 13. 13. That's it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Which is actually a good thing in one sense. It's a good thing showing that there's not a lot of HUD foreclosures out there. So that actually is a very positive thing. However, how the program is geared, you know, it, it's to give these individuals, you know, better um, opportunities actually afford a home. So the Good Neighbor Next Door program, as much as it has a great essence to it, it really doesn't hit the mark. So that's where the Helper Act comes in. The Helper Act doesn't have any kind of geographical restrictions. You can buy a house in the town that you live in. You can pick whichever house you want. Now, the only um, thing that is kind of limit, limiting, if you want to call it that, you're still under the HUD FHA, or I'm sorry, the FHA mortgage uh, limit. So, like in my area, I live in Florida. My limit's four hundred twenty thousand dollars. So, depending on the area you live in, you can't go above that. Everything would have to be below that. Okay, so let's talk about the status of the Helper Act. I guess I mean somebody first. I guess in both houses, uh, the House and the Senate has to sponsor this thing, basically draft it up. Um, where are you in that department? Well, that's already been done. So if anybody goes to thehelperact.us, that's a website that literally clearly lays out where we're at with the status of it. So right now we have 10 U.S. senators that have signed on board, five Republicans, five Democrats. And then on the House side, we have 59 members that have joined on board. And I should have known this before. I think it's 34 Democrats and 25 Republicans. So what's happened is Congressman Rutherford, the original sponsor from Florida, him as well as three other congressional leaders, Congressman Lawson, Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman from New Jersey, and, and John Katko from New York. Those four came together, two Democrats, two Republicans, and they introduced the Helper Act. The Helper Act now, with 55 other um, colleagues on board, you know that bill is moving along. And what we're trying to do is get as much traction as we can. So anybody in the listening audience, if they reach out to their representative or local congressman to find out if they've joined on to it's HR, it's House Resolution 3172. If they haven't, tell them why they should. If they have, just thank them for joining on. Now, in the Senate side, sen- sorry, go ahead. No, I was about to ask. In the Senate side, I guess it's a different <laughs> bill, right? 
Yep. So Senate uh, 2981 was introduced by Senator Marco Rubio and Senator John Ossoff. So one Republican, one Democrat. Um, after that, we got Senator Warnock from Georgia. We got Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, Bob Menendez from New Jersey, and the list goes on. But yeah, we have five Democrats, five Republicans on the Senate side. And, and I mean, are we in committee with it now or is it just kind of floating out there? No. So the thing is, the bill got introduced after all the committee assignments happened. So what happens is the committees already have their agendas. As we gain support for this bill, what's going to happen is like right now on the Senate side, there are four members of the banking committee that are already joined on. So that should actually kind of push it down the road, if you want to call it, just to say to the banking committee, hey, you know, this is a real legit bill. Let's take a look at it and let's talk about it. So it is something um, Senator Brown from Ohio is the, the ranking member of the banking committee, and he is, uh, you know, ultimately it's up to him if he wants to put it on the agenda or not. Okay, let me play devil's advocate a little bit here and try to maybe ask questions that our listeners might be thinking. Um, mm-hmm. I'm old enough to uh, remember well the 2008 uh, housing crisis. Uh, we're talking about giving people 100% upfront front financing. If I remember right, I think that was kind of how we got into trouble in 2008, where it wasn't anybody could finance a home at 100%? Um, well, there's a difference. If we're talking about what happened in the 2006-2008 era, the problem back then was there was a lot of fraud that was committed, and there was a lot of people that ultimately they lost their jobs. The fraud aspect of it is, yes, there were stated income, stated asset type of loans. So if you called me up, Nick, and said, hey, I make $10,000 a month, well, guess what? There were loans out there that I didn't even have to verify that. Mm-hmm. Well, those are all gone. Frank Dodd Act of basically 2010, 2011 made it that all companies are required to make sure the ability to repay is there. So what that did was that made it that those alleviations of anybody that's trying to kind of fudge their income, those loans were not allowed to come about anymore. So it really has come back. So even though we're trying to leverage 100% financing, if you look at the VA home loan program, Military members and veterans since 1944 have been able to purchase a home at 100% financing. Now, let me back up. It's actually a little bit after 1944 because the rules have changed over the 77 years Mm -hmm. of existence. But ultimately, 100% financing should not be a deterrent when people think we're over lending. The thing is, they still have to qualify under the traditional FHA guidelines of credit, collateral, and capacity to repay. The only difference is instead of having that 3.5% down, they are not required to have that as long as they've served four years in the industries that we've listed out. Okay. And then the other question I have is if you're a teacher and let's say your spouse is a doctor, should you mm-hmm. still receive a hundred percent upfront financing or like what, where do we end up there? So I'm going to hit you back with something. What's the difference if I'm a Marine veteran, I serve my four years and my wife's a doctor. Does that mean my VA benefit should not be there just because my wife's a doctor? No, no, I think that's a fair response. Here we are. It's moving. You know, you've got these bills in the Senate and the House. Um, you're, you're looking to kind of get you know people to call up their legislators and get it on their radar. Uh, I mean, what else can somebody do? I mean, are there specific members on committees that maybe people should be targeting, or is it not that complex yet? Um, it, I mean, it is. I mean, anybody that's on banking, you know, Sherrod Brown from Ohio is the chairman of banking there. I mean, he'd obviously be a great one to get on board. Unfortunately, Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania is a ranking member of Repub- uh, on the Republican side in banking. He is not going to be in favor of the bill. Now, he did mention that he does see that there is a lot of positive movement forward and he can see this bill passing. 
He just couldn't back it because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't like expansive government, I guess you could say. Right. Um, but we really haven't had a lot of kickback. I mean, it's just a matter of time and effort now. Um, just like today, I have a couple calls with congressional and Senate offices. You know, as many constituents that are reaching out to their, their local congressmen or senators, you know, um, that hit them up, that, that's really what's going to change the game. I mean, it is a grassroots effort. Yeah, I mean, it seems to make sense. I, I would have, you know, a hard time thinking a lot of regular Joe's like me out there would would have trouble um, with the idea of making housing affordable, especially when you start talking about these expensive real estate markets that are out there. I mean, it's one thing to be where I live as a teacher and being able to finance a home. It's another if you live in San Francisco or Washington, D.C. or oh, yeah. you know different places in Florida, I'm sure, as well, especially with what yeah. we're seeing uh, with inflation lately. Um, yeah. I mean, is that... Do, have you heard anything from, I guess, large school systems? Are they kind of throwing any weight behind this? Like, you know, say a school district in Northern Virginia or San Francisco or something like that? Well, we haven't totally targeted the school district aspect. I mean, we do have the national endorsement of the NEA, uh, the National Educators Association, and also a couple state organizations. But, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, again, we, we've actually only been doing this a little less than a year as far as uh, if you want to call it the lobbying effort. So even attraction we've gotten to this point has been great. Um, we can actually, anybody can reach out to me that's out there listening. Um, they can reach out. We have a team that can send you all the information as far as who your local politician is, a letter of support example. You know, if you are a large organization and you want to put it on your letterhead, I mean, we're all about that. When you see the Helper Act website, at the bottom, you'll see over 122 letters of endorsement we've gotten from the International Association of Firefighters to the uh, Police Chiefs Association to the FO, National FOP and so forth. And it, just like the NEA letter will be on there as well. You um, actually, before this interview, had sent me a, a pretty useful, I call it infographic, where it shows a breakdown of uh, legislators that are supporting this. Um, like, for example, where I live, I don't see any support. Not to say that they don't support it, but they haven't actually come out forward, I guess, and said, hey, I want this bill. So I guess my uh, senator, or at least one of them, and uh, representative would be somebody who should be targeted, right? So I'll definitely, actually, definitely your Senator. Uh, actually, I met personally with Cindy Hyde Smith. Mm -hmm. She was an absolutely amazing woman, super, super nice. But at the end of the day, she has not joined on yet. And I'm not saying she won't, but again, people constituents in Mississippi that choose to, you know, give her office a call and just say, Hey, we are in support of the helper act Senate bill two, nine, eight, one. By all means, that goes a lot farther than me, you know, driving to Washington and meeting with her personally. Gotcha. Well, she, she wants to hear from her constituency. Well, Sam, I, I think it's a, a noble effort that you've got here. Um, best yeah, of thanks. luck with kind of pushing this through. Um, again, you know, sometimes it's an act of Congress and it's something that's hard, but but you're just still kind of pushing through. And I, I hope you, you pull it off. I mean, it'll be quite the yeah, feat if, if you can make it happen. If anybody wants some more information on this, we're going to have lots of details in our show notes of this particular episode uh, posted online. Uh, Sam, are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. Pop quiz away. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Uh, I think math. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Common sense. <laughs> what does every child deserve? Two parents at home. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Uh, iPhones or any kind of video recording devices. What's the best gift to give an educator? Uh, this is a loaded one. You got a second? Sure. 
<laughs> so I used to be very insecure when I think it was like second or third grade that my mom would make a hand woven Christmas stocking to give to my teacher for Christmas uh -huh. because I thought it was corny. Right. That teacher pulled me aside and said, this is the most heartfelt gift I've ever gotten. And so my answer would be anything that comes from the heart and especially if it's handmade. That's awesome. Uh, and I think I kind of felt that way sometimes too. It's like, really, do I have to bring this when you're little? You know, I don't know why. Yeah. Maybe it's more boys than girls. You just kind of like, ah, okay. But you're right. You're probably thankful that, that she made you bring that, right? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it taught me the value of you don't have to have money to go buy something that you basically can use your talents, make it yourself and then give it to somebody. And it means a lot more in many senses. Absolutely. Um, which teacher changed your life? I had so many good ones, I guess you could say. And that's that's why I think I fight so hard for this bill because there wasn't really one that truly stood out. I mean, my football coach, who was a teacher, which I didn't have him in class, but I mean, and it's weird because he was the same teacher that Dwayne Johnson, the rock had, huh. her football coach, that, you know, Coach Swick was just a man that, you know, he stood up to what he believed in. He was about five foot six, maybe. And, you know, he stood up to the rock, so that's a pretty strong thing. So I, I'd have to say Jody Swick. Which book have you read, love, and want to recommend to our listeners? Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. What's that about? Uh, it's about basically taking uh, initiative for all the decisions you make. So as an example, you know, if you're the top leader and some of your subordinates happen to fail, sometimes you just have to take that ownership of the fact that you were over them and their failure to really probably failures on your part as being a leader. So yeah, Jocko's book's pretty awesome. Thank you, Sam. Again, you're listening to Sam Royer, the founder of Heroes First Home Loans and the architect of the Helper Act. Sam, best of luck with the Helper Act going forward. Yeah, thanks so much, Nick. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>